everyone, and welcome to another episode of Smells Like Business, where you can learn more about the current and future state of cannabis, CBD, and hemp in Europe. We talk to different cannabis experts and entrepreneurs, making it easier for you to enter and better understand the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Tom, and today we have Jules Marshall on the show. Jules is a freelance writer who is originally from the UK, but has been living in Amsterdam for quite some time now. He studied journalism back in the days when they still used typewriters and has been writing about a lot of very interesting different topics for over the past 30 years. Jules was one of the first journalists to write about ayahuasca back in the 90s after having spent some time in the Amazon immersing himself in the culture. But more recently, he has been writing about cannabis and other herbs. Along with his longtime career partner, Floris Lewenberg, Jules has collaborated with Noah Tucker and Anthony Joseph, two chefs based in Amsterdam, to create high cuisine, where they create dishes and cocktails using cannabis and other natural intoxicating ingredients. If you're interested in learning more about that, I recommend after this episode, listening to episode 26, where I talk to Noah Tucker all about high cuisine. But what this episode will primarily be about is Jules and Floris's most recent project, where they have partnered up with the Hash Marijuana and Hemp Museum to create a book, well, actually more of an encyclopedia, about cannabis. The book is called The Weed of Wonder, and I highly recommend getting it if you want to learn more about the history of cannabis, the many different ways it has and is being applied, and what the future of this wonderful plant might look like. The book covers so much that Jules and I only touch on a few of the chapters, the Dutch approach being one of them, but I don't want to give away any more, so let's just get into it. All right. Hi, Jules. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Tom, and thanks for asking me on. An absolute pleasure. So perhaps we can start by you painting us a little picture and you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what you were doing before you started writing about cannabis and other natural intoxicants, and then how you ended up writing about cannabis and eventually the weed of wonder. Sure. Yeah, I'm originally from England. I moved around quite a bit as a child, but basically my formative years were in uh, the east of England, Norfolk, which is a big agricultural area. My youth was very close to nature, if you like. I was fishing and cycling the countryside and making dens and very traditional childhood. And I was desperate to get out and move to a city, of course, which uh, I did when I went to university. And I was good at most academic subjects. I could have gone, you know, English, French and history, but I ended up doing chemistry, biology. And then going to university to study uh, human sciences at Oxford. And that's basically the study of humans from the molecular genetic level up to the societal anthropological level. And my first term there, I kind of discovered cannabis, hashish, as it was back in the 80s. And the same first term, I discovered magic mushrooms. A friend uh, showed me how to identify them. At the same time, I was studying my first module of anthropology. So, you know, looking at Sudanese tribes and that sort of thing. And there seemed to be a big connection there. And I got a lot of intellectual stimulation from the, this. And I, I had a kind of lifelong passion for strange human cultures, just how amazingly varied we are around the world. Decided to go into journalism. Went back to college in the mid-80s to Cardiff, um, one of the top journalism schools, and did news reporting there. And I was the last of the old school. We still learnt on typewriters. 
yeah, so my first job was literally cut and paste, you know, doing everything on a, on a monthly newspaper. And then suddenly reading William Gibson's Neuromancer, the cyberpunk genre of sci-fi kind of hit me like a brick. It was like, oh my God, these computers are going to be everything and everywhere. So I moved sideways, got a job editing a computer newspaper in London, and then parlayed that into a job in Amsterdam, which I visited a couple of times and loved. And this is in 89, and I came to work on a, a magazine called Electric Word, which was the same editor and publisher that went on to do Wired. And so I was working on the, the prototype of Wired for the first year. They went back to America to do that. I decided to stay with my girlfriend and become a freelancer. So that's pretty much what I did for about 25, nearly 30 years, writing everything you can imagine from travel stories to business stories to, I guess, my main thrust in the, in the 90s would be writing about the rise of the Internet and uh, that sort of thing. By the end of the 90s, I was pretty sick of it, became yeah. quite a technophobe. Anyway, along the way, I met up with a young Dutch photographer, Floris Leeuwenberg, and we just found out we had very similar interests. We started doing some stories on a brain machine that used light and sound, and he did some cannabis stories. I did a couple. And then suddenly in 1990, late 1995, the two of us got the chance to go to the Amazon to a village that was the Santo Ayahuasca religion. We spent six weeks in Brazil and came back and published that. And it was one of the first stories about ayahuasca. We were in independence in the UK, but it also got published in Dutch, Marie Claire, and Russian, Spanish. Yeah, that was an interesting time. So around 2002, I started working as a freelance editor for Soft Secrets UK. That was a growers newspaper given out free, one of the biggest in Europe. After a few years, I was a judge in the, the High Life Cup a few years running, which was fun. After that, Floris and I got together and we set up a vaporizer review blog in 2010. We also did a short film for Berdrukan, which is the medicinal cannabis company in the Netherlands. I'm explaining all this because I did quite a bit of research on the medicinal and also the Dutch history of cannabis. I just thought, wow, this is, there's so much to say about this. It was all starting to change in, the, in America. The states were legalizing and the modern 21st century cannabis industry was growing up around us. And we really felt that with Floris's photos and my research, we wanted to kind of draw a line under what we've been doing and pull it all together. So early, late 2012, we met up with Herbrand at the Hash Museum in Amsterdam and pitched him a story, pitched him a book idea, and they went great, and we signed a contract to do like a 150-word brochure, which is what they were in the market for, and it became very apparent that we had a lot more to say, especially once we started delving into the museum's artifacts in, in Barcelona and in Amsterdam. I used to kind of bemoan the fact that every chapter in the book could have been a book in its own right, really. It was really fun in some ways, but also mind-stretching. I knew that when I started the book, it was going to be for, you know, Italian tourists and, and confused grannies who'd wandered in to get out of the rain or whatever. But at the same time, it was commissioned by and was going to be judged and read by some of the world's leading experts on cannabis, each with their own very strong ideas of where it came from, where it's going, and particularly the, the Dutch story, which we have a chapter in the book about why Holland was different to other countries. So they had these two poles, really, to, to work between. It's definitely not a brochure, that's for sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> it spiraled out of control. No, it didn't spiral out of control. We were quite happy to make it like that. And more of an object that the museum can be proud of than just something that it tries to sell visitors on the way out kind of thing. Great. So, I mean, that's quite the introduction. 
It sounds like you've had quite the fruitful life and have written about different aspects of the world in the last, you know, 20, 30 years now. And there's been a lot of changes and you've been writing a lot about technology, but now you're writing more about biology and plants. So why did you decide to now focus primarily on cannabis and, and the book, The Weed of Wonder? It was a conscious decision. The book ended up being pretty much what I kind of sketched out in 2012 as the, the story that I wanted to write, really. Although it was padded out with all the lovely artifacts and stories behind them, which I hadn't anticipated. So it was a perfect partner having the museum. Ever since coming back from the Amazon, I'd wanted to do something more significant with plants. I wasn't sure what. I did a, a one-year apprenticeship in foraging uh, around Amsterdam with a Canadian woman in 2010-11, I think. And from that, I started making tinctures and using various plants for health. And so that meshed very nicely with cannabis. And eventually, in 2015, through Floris, uh, I got involved with two chefs. Uh, and the four of us became high cuisine. And that's grown as a platform, which is looking at not just the cannabis, but also psilocybin mushrooms and other psychoactive herbs used in high cuisine. So I've written two books for them. One was a cookery book based on the recipes from the, the chefs. But that was for a kind of quick, fast TV tie-in. And this time, beginning in 2020, we teamed up with some top cocktail makers to make psychoactive cocktails. And that's out at the end of this month. Nice. I spoke to Noah Tucker, I think it was episode 26. And he did talk about this cocktail book. So I'll be very curious to check that out when it does come out. But yes, let's get back on to The Weed of Wonder, the book. Perhaps you can tell us in your own words what this book is all about. Sure. It's looking at the plant cannabis from all its aspects. So as a biological plant with an evolutionary history, and then quite quickly, its relationship with humans. Uh, it's such a multifaceted plant in terms of providing spiritual, religious, recreational uh, effects from its from smoking and consuming it. It's used as a fiber and building product. It's used as a medicine. So doing the research, it seemed that there were re recurring themes that hippies have been here before. You know, the Sufis went through pretty much the same thing in the 10th, 11th century and, and still now. Uh, there's always been a connection between consumption of cannabis and being a marginal, looked down upon social group. There have been many repressions all around throughout history, and it keeps seem to be getting forgotten about. There's lots of writing about its use in Persian and ancient Greek and Roman medicine, and then it kind of disappears for a few hundred years, and in Europe anyway, and all the recipes that talk about it talk about the leaves and the roots, and nothing about the buds. So, yeah, there's always, it's always been shrouded in mystery and rebellion, and these things pop out at various times in history. Well, yeah, isn't it uh, chapter three, Europe's cannabis dark ages? Women who were using it as medicine had to do it in secret. Otherwise, they could be accused of witchcraft and, and all sorts. So uh, when we think of uh, cannabis prohibition, you know, we often think of the latest one. But as the book illustrates, that's been the case throughout history. And the saying uh, history repeats itself. It sounds like it's definitely true in this case. But saying that, I do hope history repeats itself when it comes to hemp. Yes, I, th I have to say, after finishing the book, the aspect of the plant that most excites me is the possibilities of hemp, and by extension, all plant materials. In the, the 1930s, I mentioned about Henry Ford and another bunch of industrialists who really fleshed out plans for a bio-based economy, you know, pre-war. And it's you know, tragic to think what we might have avoided if we had gone along that route. But even before that, 
one of the most mind-blowing periods to look into hemp is the rise of the Dutch maritime power in the 1600s and how much logistics and organization went into growing and transporting and processing all the hemp to, to make the rigging and the sails and the uniforms and the corking and all the various parts of the boat, sailboats that require hemp. It must have been an amazing site to go outside Amsterdam to Zandam, which was kind of like a pre-industrial revolution that was wind-powered, where they were, you know, wind-powered sawmills were churning out boats faster than anybody else, and wind-powered hemp processing, processing hemp faster than anybody else. Ah, yes, the hemp windmills. I remember reading about that in The Weed of Wonder. So, I mean, how do you actually go about researching all this? Because did it all come from the museum? Because there really is an enormous amount of information packed into this book. And it's really not that easy finding reliable information and sources about cannabis. So I tried to cross-reference as many different sources as I could find online, a mixture of digested information in the form of articles, but also kind of original books. And, uh, and then just sort of sift through it. I guess a lot of it was with the museum, right? Because it, it was with also... the museum, and I borrowed, they had a good library, so I borrowed some books from them. And I'd already been up to the Hemp Flax, which is the um, hemp growing and processing factory owned by the same people that set up the um, museum. Ben Jonkers. Ben Jonkers, yeah. And we'd been down to his seed bank. It has probably the largest cannabis seed bank in, in the world, in the south of the Netherlands. Sensi Seeds, right? Yeah, Sensi Seeds. And so, yeah, I talked to people like that. Mark, the manager of the factory, we'd been around the factory, seen how hemp was processed, uh, been to the fields. So it was pretty much how Floris and I worked in the past. We very immersive. We like to dive in and into the big stories that we did anyway and, and really kind of live it. So um, it was a process. And how was it with the museum? I mean, I remember you said you got to see some of their collection and you got to borrow some books from their library. Unfortunately, I haven't had the, the pleasure yet of visiting their museum, but I mean, that must have been a treasure chest of uh, information and resource. Yes, a lot of it needed cataloging, and that's what Fairbrand has been doing over the years. We started at the Barcelona Museum and just spent, I think, about three days going through photographing everything and uh, talking about things we wanted to put in the book. That was right at the beginning of the process. And then we had the access to the Amsterdam collection later. A lot of cannabis writing or drugs writing is by enthusiasts. And we were both enthusiasts, but also trained professionals. And also, I think what one of the strengths was that neither of us were involved in the business in any way. So it was very much a, a top-down view from my perspective. And I didn't work in the coffee shop scene, so I didn't have a particular drum to bang. And that helped, I think, to steer clear of the inevitable politics that would come up in the process. More of an objective perspective, absolutely. It'd be interesting to talk a bit about the Dutch approach, because obviously you've lived in the Netherlands for a good little while now, and you lived in Amsterdam in what I think a lot of people would agree was the golden ages. What is your two cents on the Dutch approach? What made the 90s a golden age in terms of cannabis was that there were thousands of small growers producing really high quality weed for coffee shops. A lot of single moms would convert the basement and just grow a little bit to supplement their income. And it was amateur growers. And then the authorities changed the law and it became easier to throw people out if they were in a council house. Almost overnight, a lot of these small growers stopped and the demand didn't stop. So crime moved in and it moved back to um, illegal plantations kind of business model. 
With a dark underbelly attached. Yeah, unintended consequences. The Dutch politicians thought, oh, we'll clamp down on the growers. And all that did was clamp down on small, nice growers and pushed all the business into big, nasty growers. Uh, a lot of the weed that used to be grown here is now grown in Spain or Poland. And yeah, it's all, all a bit strange. It is a little bit strange what's been going on in the Netherlands over the last maybe 10, 20 years. But in general, we should definitely applaud them for the Dutch approach. And you actually dedicate a whole chapter to the Dutch approach in The Weed of Wonder. And I think it's really nice because the chapter starts off by saying, of the 180 countries that signed the all-encompassing UN Single Convention Treaty on Narcotic Drugs in 1961, the Netherlands was one of the few that chose not to treat cannabis users as criminals. And I think that's a good way of starting the chapter, and it illustrates quite nicely sort of the, the tolerance the Dutch have towards cannabis, in spite of what's happened over the last 15, 20 years. Tolerance and level-headedness. I think the fact that they chose to see it as a health issue rather than a police issue did definitely avoid some of the more punitive approaches, even in Europe. I know the Dutch got into a lot of trouble with the French in the early 90s, so any drugs problem, it was always blamed on the Dutch. And it was kind of, the idealism was kind of beaten out of them by the by the other fellow European countries, really. Former Prime Minister who writes the introduction to the book notes that the Dutch politicians in the early to late 70s really thought that the rest of Europe, when they saw how a sensible approach worked, would just uh, adopt it as well. But um, drugs in general, and particularly cannabis, it's always occupied a, a strange cultural position yeah, definitely. I think it's only now in Europe starting to change a little bit for the better, the attitude towards cannabis. Actually, I'm quite curious because obviously you've been writing about cannabis and other natural drugs since the 90s. What changes have you seen in the attitude of people, societies, cultures, maybe even governments towards cannabis and other natural drugs? Yeah, I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier or if it was in our pre-interview chat, but I, I always saw cannabis as a gateway herb, not a gateway drug. When you look at the early days and how it was spoken about and adopted as a, as a medicine in the early 2000s and the drilling down into the entourage effect and the role of terpenes and as consumers educated themselves about that, it was an easy step to go, well, other plants have terpenes and all kinds of wonderful ingredients in them. So I think that's one thing. And again, I think that we're generally more open to herbal, herbal, uh, Remedies, maybe. Herbal remedies, yeah. I mean, you even have to be careful of the words you use. It's yeah. such a legal minefield that has been built around keeping herbs out and pharmaceuticals in. And so I see cannabis as part of that struggle, really. I think the baby boomers getting old, uh, they may well have tried joints in their youth, but they're now ready to try cannabis oil and CBD. And I mean, it's perfect for illnesses of old age. You know, it keeps your joints flexible keeps your brain functioning nicely. If I was a politician, I think I would make it free on health services, really. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. Great. So, I mean, what advice would you give to a young cannabis writer or a writer who wants to start writing about this uh, wonderful plant? It's become such a niche industry now. I'd imagine it's hard to write about hemp and write about the medicinal side because things are changing so fast. The whole business of writing has really changed in the last 20 years. It's one of the reasons why we're doing books is because journalism wasn't paying. Yeah, I, I would say on the one hand, have a specialism, but on the other hand, try and be as general as you can. If you're trying to make all your money from writing, it's going to be tricky. 
back in the 90s, the, the, you know, the money was in advertising. So I would get paid much more for writing a website for Heineken, for instance, than I would get you know, for writing a story for a local newspaper. And that ecosystem has changed again. So if you extrapolate from my working with Floris, it's good to work with a team. I think it helps if you have friends that you can lean on professionally, but also um, very often you know, Floris would bring a story in and he would say, oh, I've got a writer, or I'd get, bring a story in and say, oh, I've got a photographer. And there's a bit of force multiplying going on if you're working with other people. It's quite hard to start from scratch as a lone... Lone wolf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, I only have one last question for you, which I ask all my guests, and that is if you could go back in time, is there anything you would do differently? With Weed of Wonder, the only thing I'd do differently is make sure I have an office space to work in. That was the hardest thing. <laughs> I'd love to go back and see Amsterdam in the 1650s with all of the masts and the, the trade going on and ships coming in from all over the world. It must have been remarkable. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that must have been an amazing sight to behold. But yes, that's it, Jules. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share with us your wealth of knowledge on the topic of cannabis. It was a pleasure talking to you, Tom. So that was Jules Marshall, who I just want to thank again for coming on the show. If you want to find out more about the book, Weed of Wonder, you can visit the website weedofwonder.nl. That's W-E-E-D-O-F-W-O-N-D-E-R dot N-L. If you want to find out more about the Hash Marijuana and Hemp Museum, you can visit their website at hashmuseum.com. They actually have two museums, one in Amsterdam and one in Barcelona. If you're interested in reading some of Jules's other work, there are some links in the description of this episode. Also, do make sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out our website at www.smellslikebusiness.com. I've been your host, Tom. Have a green day. Business.